Please open with me to 1 John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to take out the whole chapter today. 1 John chapter 4. I've entitled this uh, message, Proof of the Spirit. 1 John chapter 4. We're going to be in verses, obviously, 1 through 21. We left off this past week in the last part of chapter three. So if you flip back page verse 24, which says, and by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And so now in chapter four, uh, the apostle John is going to describe a few ways in which the indwelling of the Holy spirit in the life of a believer is evident. And John points, uh, John's point is that the Holy spirit is, is, is not uh, only going to prove out our salvation. Not only is he an evidence of our salvation, but he's also going to protect and secure our salvation. That's just who he does. He protects us from false teaching. And really what John, what first John, the whole book, as you look at the letter of first John, he writes there, it's, it's not only proofs of salvation. He wants us to know that we're saved. That's important. He goes, I, I, I'm writing this. He says this in chapter five somewhere. He says, I'm writing this whole thing so that you know, without a doubt, basically you have been saved. He wants us to know the assurance of the sovereign work of God and salvation in our hearts. He wants us to know we're saved. But not only that, he wants them to be protected at the same time against the work of the devil among them, which was absolutely active. Uh, because what believers in the church faced back then, as we do today, uh, is that there are false teachers and false prophets claiming to speak on behalf of God. How many of you have maybe flipped on the TV or been in a church experience where someone says, you know, you know, God's telling me something right now. And then and, and here we go. And then they wrestled the money out of you for a Learjet, you know, whatever it might be. I'm coveting that Learjet folks. Um, no, but you know what I'm talking about, right? There's, there's, it's like, and, and we can kind of go, okay, well, that's, we can see that guy's you know, that guy's off or that gal's off. We, we kind of can kind of just know that, but you know, listen, the, the idea of false prophets and false teachers that they're, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. It's hard to tell. There's, there's a camouflage going on. And so the blatant things are, are easy to see. And, and so what, what John wants to say is that by the nature of the Holy spirit within you, you're going to be able to discern some things. And he wants you to have some evidences and to know as you walk with the Lord and as you encounter these various things, the relationship you have to the Holy Spirit and how he's going to help you navigate in the world we're in. And so John in chapter four, verse one, as we move in, he says, beloved, which is divinely loved by God, says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits because just as Jesus had told me and he it is evident we've taught you there are false prophets out into the world. They've gone out into the world. And so what appears to be happening is, is as you read the Bible, as you read the new Testament, particularly acts, you kind of get a cross section and in first Corinthians 14 and other places, you get a kind of cross section of what early church life was like. It was very Jewishly influenced. The old Testament had just closed. Um, and so here we are, they, they, we'd, they'd be meeting in their homes. They'd be meeting at church on Saturday or Sunday or whenever they were gathering together as God's people. And there would be those in the church that would be a prophet and they would come and they would come to the gathering wherever they were and they would speak to the people. 
Now we get a glimpse of how this looked in practice in 1 Corinthians 14. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 12, 13, 14, Paul's addressing basically the spiritual gifts within the church. And, and he's talking mainly about the abuse of them. And that's why he sandwiches chapter 13 and chapter, uh, chapter 12 and chapter 13 with love in the middle. Okay, so 13, he's going to talk about all these gifts. And then, uh, sorry, 12, he's going to talk about all the gifts. Then 13, he's going to talk about love. And then 14, he's going to go back and talk about the gifts again. And he's saying, you guys are abusing this stuff because it's not about edifying. That's the idea of the gifts of the Spirit. He's given us the gifts within the body to edify one another. That's the context here. I'm not going to teach 1 Corinthians 14. Maybe I will. But Paul lays down some guidelines, and that's the context here. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 through 33 says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. He says, let all things be done for the building up. That's what he's saying. Whatever you got going on, whatever your gifts are, whatever's going on when you meet together, let it be done for the mutual building up of one another. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three at most. And so he's bringing order to the gathering. Not everybody. How many of you been in a church situation, maybe a charismatic background, where all of a sudden the whole church is speaking in tongues? Well, the pastor did not read verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most. And each in turn, and let someone interpret. I'm not going to get into all this right now. But Verse 28 is, is in 29 is where I'm going, but there is no one interpret. Let each one keep silent in the church and speak to himself only into God, because the purpose of the whole thing is, is edification. Verse 29, just to give the context here, let two or three who prophets speak and let the others do what weigh what is said. And then here's the response. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent for you can you can, for you can all prophesy one by one so that they may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. In other words, they're not, not going to talk over one another. And so there's this time in their gatherings for those gifted in prophecy to speak. And what they said uh, was to be weighed. Paul says, and John says the same thing. Don't believe every spirit that's talking in church. Don't just sit there and take what Pastor Matt says as gospel truth. Weigh what we say. Amen? Weigh it. What do you weigh it against? How you feel. Politics. I really want you to weigh it politically. Yeah, popular culture. What your spouse says. What do we weigh it against? What's the standard? The word of God. We weigh these things against the word of God. That's what we're supposed to do. Don't believe every, but spirit, but test the spirits. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with prophets, I know this sounds kind of weird in the church. Paul gives this great description of the function of prophecy within the church. He says, 1 Corinthians 14, 3, and this is him talking to a church that was functioning in these gifts after the resurrection. Uh, while the apostles were still around, there's a lot about talk about whether those still go on or not, but. 1 Corinthians 14, 3, he says, this is when you're thinking of prophecy, this is the idea behind it. He says, the one who prophesies speaks to people, what for? For their upbuilding, right? And their encouragement and their consolation. That's the purpose behind prophecy. And if you get into study of prophecy, you realize there's foretelling and foretelling and all this type of stuff. 
not going to do teaching on that right now. But what Paul is describing here in 1 Corinthians 14 is the difference between the gift of tongues, which is a form of prayer and praise that doesn't edify the church and is babbling, basically, and prophecy, which is for the church's edification. He says, which one's better? Which one's going to be in love? Well, obviously the one that people understand. So if you're speaking in tongues, you're drawing attention to yourself. That doesn't help anybody else. So we want to draw attention. We want to edify one another when we're together. That's the purpose, right? And there's are numerous New Testament examples of prophecy in action within the church. Just so we don't think it's just a charismatic thing. At book of, the book of Acts chapter 13 you run into prophets. Look at, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Prophets were separate from teachers. And he starts naming them off this, this group of people, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, uh, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, Paul, who we know Paul. So these guys were all gifted in one or the other of those, those things. And while they were worshiping the Lord, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, now let me ask you, how did he say this? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. How do you think he spoke? And how do you think he spoke? I think there was a prophecy going on in the church service. That's what was going on. One of these men was unctioned against the Lord. And so what did they do after someone is they're praying and they're worshiping the Lord? And they go, you know what? I think the Lord's saying that Paul and Barnabas, you got to go do the work of the Lord. And notice what happens next. Then after fasting and praying, oh yeah, let's weigh what this, what this guy's saying. Let's weigh this. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We find out that was actually what God was doing. Now, we, we know that that's, that seems to, and, and just to let you know, so that was the, uh, how prophecy was acting within the church. Check out Acts 11. 27 through 30. Another example, Acts 11, 27 through 30. Now, some would say that these are prescriptive, not descriptive. We can, we can agree to disagree on some of these things. It's okay. But Acts 11, 27 through 30. Now in the days, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, who we're going to read about again in just a minute, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And what does the writer tell us? He prophesied it. And what do we find out? This took place in the days of Claudius. And what was the purpose of this prophecy to draw attention to Agabus? We keep reading. So the disciples determined everyone, according to his ability to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hands of Paul and Bar- uh, Barnabas and Saul. And so they said, man, there's, there's this thing coming. Who's going to be affected by this? Well, what is the act of love? We know that the church in Jerusalem is impoverished. And so we're going to gather up what we can. And we're going to go bless them so they aren't hurt during this time. You see, it was, there was an act of love that followed this prophecy. And so Agabus was a recognized prophet within the church at that time. And the church, we see him again. And, and actually, by the way, in Acts 21, 7 through 14. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at uh, Ptolemais. And we greeted the brothers. This is Paul, and I believe Luke is re- recording this, obviously. Um, and we stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of who? 
Philip the evangelist. So Philip is gifted in evangelism. Who was one of the seven? Acts chapter 6. The ones who waited tables. He was one of the seven. So he's gifted in evangelism. And we stayed with him. And by the way, he had four unmarried daughters who what? Who prophesied. And while they, we were staying uh, for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And so we have evangelists we have, and prophets, both men and women here in the early church. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt around his own feet and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him in the hands of the Gentiles. And so Agabus prophesies in front of all the people, he takes Paul's belt, binds it around his hands and says, this is what's going to happen to you, Paul. This is what the Lord's telling you is going to happen to you at the hands of the Jews. And so he's obviously a respected prophet. He was a trusted prophet in the church. And what happens, verse 12, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And many people think that Paul kind of went against the Lord by not obeying this because Paul also says, wherever I go, it's testifying all in every city I go in that I'm going to be in chains. Now that might just be that the church was saying that we had prophets in every city telling him this, the same thing was going to happen. Or it might've been like, he keeps getting persecuted in every church, which I think is what's happened both. Yeah. But he says, he since he would not be persuaded. Verse 14. Oh wait, Paul says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. I love this. Paul loves the church. He goes, for I'm not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of Lord Jesus. Just love the Lord. And since we would not, he would not be persuaded. He, 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 uh, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You know, it's in God's hands. Let him go. Right. Paul knows what he's heading into. The point is to point out is that there were prophets early in the church. That's, that's what we see is happening. Now I'm not I'm personally not a cessationist, which means you believe that the gifts are done. I do believe the gifts have not stopped. I think they continue. However, I don't think there are apostles. I think there were 12 and they are not in Utah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and there is no new revelation coming down from heaven and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, and, and brothers and, and sisters disagree on this stuff. That's okay. But I, I think there are very much... There's prophecy going on. There are, there's evangelism. There's teacher teaching just as they're shepherding and so forth. And, and I just don't think it's, it's identified in the church as a prophet, like so-and-so is a prophet. I mean, you all call me Pastor Matt, and that's, a, that's right there out of the Bible. You know, I'm a pastor and I'm a teacher. That's kind of the, the gifting that I have. It's like, well, what about these other guys? Are they chumps? No. It's like they're, they're actually working in the church. You ha- Some of you are gifted in evangelism. Some of you are gifted in... And encouragement. And I just think it's much more subtle, uh, perhaps in our setting. And I think some of you do have words from the Lord and you are hearing from God and you encourage people, but it's not a, hey, thus saith the Lord, you know, kind of a prophet. You're encouraging one another and say, you know, I've been praying for you and this is what the Lord is, has in scripture. Weigh it and find out if that's what he, he has for you. So we can, it's a slippery slope because then you, I understand all, all the arguments going back and forth there, but I just don't see where it stopped. And, and what that really makes you do is it makes you have to, it's safer to say it's, it's ended because if it hasn't, then you really have to, you have to go by what Paul says. You have to take everything against the word of God. You have to combat false doctrine. You have to be involved in the lives of the people. You have to do everything the scripture is saying there about leadership and the whole deal. But anyways, there are those in the body in the early church who, who've had these giftings and needless to say 
uh, anything that was proclaimed, they had to weigh against the word of God. And in John's day, prophets would have been in the church. There would have been traveling prophets. There would have been people who said they were apostles. You got a bunch of strange things going on. And what had happened is they'd just come into the church and people would just take what they'd say because they have a name attached to them where they heard about something. How many of you have heard like, oh, so-and-so's teaching it somewhere. I'm going to go. And you assume that it's gospel truth. You didn't weigh it out before and you didn't study. You didn't find out what was going on, what their connections are, all this stuff that God requires us to do. You see, God calls us to, to handle the word rightly, to, 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 to test in John's day, there would just be prophets cruising into church, I guess. And, and while the Lord used prophets apparently to edify, encourage, and console the church, at the same time, Satan uses that same mechanism, just as he does with pastors and whomever else, to lead people astray. And that's what was happening in John's day, and that's what's happening in our day. So verse one, John says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are for God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. If someone starts saying, God says, say, you got to say, does he really? And start matching it up with scripture, whether it's me or an elder or someone you meet. We're so quick to take what people are saying on YouTube or wherever it is, as if it's from God himself. It's going to say the CDC and all these other things. But anyways, we're to, test what is, we're to test what's being said in matters of doctrine and matters of life. Why? Because right alongside truth, right alongside truth is the perversion of truth given by the enemy. And that's what's happening in the church here that John is facing, and it's still happening in the church today. So we're to test. And Paul says the same thing to the church in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 20 through 21, he says, don't despise prophecy, but test everything. Boy, that's a challenge, isn't it? Do we despise prophecy or do we test it? In verse 2 and 3, John gives them the test. So he says test, and then he gives them one of the tests. One of the tests to determine if a person is a false prophet or not. It says in verse 2 and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. <clears throat> and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So John says in verse 2 to believers, by this you know spirit of God. The implication here is that those who have the spirit are going to have discernment about spiritual things. Mainly number one, they says number one test is concerning what is said, what is taught concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Doctrine regarding Jesus Christ. It is important that we have discernment in this area and the spirit will give you discernment. And John's primary test here. <clears throat> was that people would acknowledge those who are saying they're speaking on behalf of God. Do they acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh? Do they acknowledge that he's the son of God? How many of you have talked to people and they say, Oh, Jesus was a great teacher. Anybody giving you Jesus is a great teacher, man. I have the utmost respect from 
about Jesus. He is the greatest teacher and all that stuff. Did he come from God? Is he the son of God? Is he God the son? Well, now, there you go. But what if you didn't ask that question? What if you didn't find a little deeper? What if you didn't dig? What if you didn't test? You just assume. Now, the specific false teaching that was prevalent in their day was a Gnostic heresy. That's what John's addressing here in his, in his letters and in his gospel. And those Gnostics believed, among many things, that everything spiritual was good and everything physical was bad. Everything material was bad. Spiritual good, material bad. <clears throat> and they believed that an evil God, I guess, created the material universe and a good one apparently created all the good spiritual things that are unseen. And through secret knowledge, you can level up. <laughs> you can level up and become a Jedi Knight or whatever it is they believe there. But therefore, the Gnostics heretics believed in a warped form of the deity of Jesus. So they acknowledged, okay, spirit is good. But they denied that God was in the flesh because the material world is evil. Instead, many of them espoused that Jesus was a great teacher who was an ordinary man and he attained enlightenment through secret knowledge. Does that sound like any world religions? You can attain nirvana. You can attain status through secret knowledge if you just follow this path. And so they denied the very thing that John said back in the very first part of the book. Just listen. I've seen the son of God. I've touched him. I've handled him. I've heard him. I've talked to him concerning the word of life. And the life was made manifest. And he says it again in first John, uh, in, in his gospel, John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the word, God, the son became flesh and dwelt among us. You can't get around it. He says this also, obviously in the first chapter, but John says, don't just believe, test and find out if they confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that Jesus is truly from God. Now we have to be aware today that we must still test the spirits. And that's the point of what, what John is saying. And it's, a, it's the application and the implication today, because we have religious people all over the place claiming to represent God, claiming to be Christians today, like the church of Jesus Christ for, of Latter-day Saints. I'll just go ahead and pick on them for a minute. They, were, they readily confess. If you talk to them, if you say, hey, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? Oh, absolutely. Do you believe he came in the flesh? Oh, absolutely. Oh, then we're good. We're Christians. Yeah, let's have fun. That's not true. Two came to my door this week. Last week, they readily confessed Jesus has come in the flesh and he's the son of God. But that's just semantics. And so it isn't just the fact that someone mouths the words. That's not it. It's that they actually agree with their lives and, what, and they reflect what the apostles taught. And the scriptures declare concerning the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. Because if you get Jesus wrong you get eternity wrong. And that's the enemy's tactic. You can be right on all these areas, but you get the person of Jesus wrong and you miss it. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And so do you think the enemy might want to go ahead and just make Jesus just look pretty on the outside, but really this is a, it's a different Jesus they're talking about. And that's what happens. 
Because what is true of all false prophets and false teachers is there's some kind of perversion concerning the person of Jesus Christ. This is always the attack. You know, it's like you listen to popular modern people who have a lot of common sense. So, you know, like modern philosophers like Jordan Peterson. You listen to him. He doesn't believe in a literal Jesus. He allegorizes everything. And I know you're going to go look at Jordan Peterson. You're going to be go, wow, that's amazing. But I mean, it's influential as you start looking at this, but he psychologizes it, the whole thing. It's, a, it's an evolutionary construct of the, of the mind is what religion is. That's, that's what it comes down to. What spirit is that? That's an antichrist spirit. Don't follow down that road. But picking on the Mormons again, on, on the surface, Mormonism teaches that Jesus is the son of God and that he came in the flesh. You can, you can get that. And if that isn't tested, you will not find out what they don't tell you that they deny the Trinity. They believe that Jesus is actually the spirit brother of Lucifer. It's Satan and Jesus were brothers. That the father has a glorified body. He is not spirit. He has a glorified body. And by the way, he has a wife who they call heavenly mother. And hey guys, you too can have your own heavenly wife. If you get married in one of their temples, then you will have your own planet and populate it with spirit babies and so on and so on and so on. They don't put that on the front page of their website. You need to dig for it. Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. We've learned from the Bible. They'll tell you all the day, all day the Bible says, but they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. You can't get around it. And they'll say, well, he was a God. And any of you who can, you know, elementary, just basic, like fundamental Greek, if you put an A in front of God, you've got to put an A every single other time there's, there's God in the Bible. God is a God. No, it was saying that he is theos. He is God. And you can go on and on, but they don't tell you right off the bat that Jesus is an angel. He's the created angel. He's Michael, an archangel. He's actually not a creator. He can't create, even though you look in first Sorry, I'm just going. Never mind. <clears throat> they don't believe that he was resurrected physically. They don't believe that he was resurrected physically. He died and that was the end. He was only resurrected spiritually. Why do you think that is? Where, what's the root of that teaching? It's in this Gnosticism. And that's when they will take you as you're talking to them. They're going to take you back and say, oh, the Trinity was invented in the third century, you know, the third century by the church and the Nicene Creed. And you go, no, the Nicene Creed had to clarify truth because of heretics like you. That's what was going on. Marriage was always marriage until someone said it was something other than it was. And then they had to clarify it. You know, that's the idea behind it. And so, Jehovah's Witnesses have their root in Gnosticism and this Gnostic heresy and all this type of stuff. And th- these are the easy ones to spot. This is easy. What's happening in our churches today concerning the person of Jesus, we've made Jesus into similar to this Gnostic heresy. In other words, he exists for your, he's your own personal God. 
He's here. He's just an, he's just an iPhone. Create your own religion, create your own universe, throw Jesus at the middle. Instead of you lose your life and you become subject to him. And then by therefore losing your life, you actually find it in him. You see, churches are trying to appeal to the fallen nature of humanity and and all this type of stuff. We're trying to appeal to your fallenness and make sure you, you know, God, I got to have a great children's ministry. Got to have bells and whistles and everything you need. Because if we don't take care of everything that you need and I need, then, oh, you know, the church will fall apart. And it's like, listen, it's about surrender. If God's in it and you come and you're convicted by the Holy Spirit and, and, and you're broken before the Lord and he's your only way out. And, you know, it could just be you and me in an elevator and it's going to be good. You know, the church is not, a, is, not a, is not Walmart. It's people who have been broken and they come to God by a move, a sovereign work of God's Holy Spirit in their life. And we surrender to him. And he's our life and his people are our life. And we're changed and we're brought together by a powerful bond. And we can't be entertained out of it or into it. It's a work of God. And so we got to be careful that these heresies abound and how we try to paint Jesus in a way that is something we want instead of who he truly is. John says, test the spirits. Do they truly confess that Jesus came to the flesh? Do they believe what was recorded and taught by the apostles concerning Jesus, the ones who were there and saw him and walked with him and taught him and heard him? If not, John says in verse three, boy, we're not getting far today. That every, spirit, <laughs> that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. You can just know that. If someone does not believe that, what they're, what they're espousing is not from God. You just have a discernment. And that's going to give you peace in your heart. You're going to know that. You're going to know they need to be evangelized. Not entertained. You know where it's coming from. It's a demonic origin of what they're saying. It's antichrist. Now, John makes it clear that this is not the physical manifestation of antichrist. He says that again. He said it earlier. He says, listen, the the embodiment of this spirit, a physical person is going to come on the scene. I want you to know that the antichrist is coming, but the spirit, the demonic power behind all that, the philosophies and the false religions and all that stuff, it's at work in false prophets and what he calls the antichrist, little antichrist all over the place. Those who are antichrist, it's demonic. Rather, these perversions of Jesus come from the spirit of antichrist operating in the world. So John says, you know the spirit of God. You know when something is of God because they'll testify truly about who Jesus is. It's not a false Jesus. It's not a pretend Jesus. It's not a plastic Jesus. It's not the Jesus you want him to be. It's who he is and declared himself to be. Amen? That's why John says in verse 4, little children. Notice he's talking about hard things, but he keeps coming back to him gently. He says, little children, you are from God. And have overcome them, the false prophets, the antichrist of the world. Why? For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Who is in you? The spirit of God, the spirit of Christ. God dwells in the believer. That's what he's talking about. John just reaffirms that they're not going to be sucked into this falsehood because they have the spirit of God within them. They're born of the spirit. And again, proof is that you have the spirit abiding in you is that you're aligned on the truth 
of Scripture concerning the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, but they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Lies about Christ are food for the world. The world just chews it up. It drives me crazy every time there's anything, any kind of religious type of, they always bring in, I don't know, how do they choose the people to bring on like TV interviews about Christ and, and all this type of stuff? It's like, no, that's not, that. no, that's not the one. You know, they never bring on like a MacArthur or someone, you know, just, <laughs> it's always someone who's strange. <clears throat> you know, well, I know that MacArthur would be strange to them, but that's probably why they didn't bring him on. But just, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we can all, you know. I mean, who doesn't want to hear Joe Osteen tell him that everybody's going in? You know, everybody's, we're all together and we're all in there. You know, and there's no actually line. There's no line drawn. There's no sin. There's no holiness. There's no, you know. Anyways, he says they're from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. Verse 6, but we are from God. And John says, listen, that's what false prophets are, but then he flips it back on himself. He says, we, meaning John and the other apostles and probably the writers of the New Testament is what he's talking about. Whoever, we're of God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Another test that you know that the spirit of God is in you is that your faith is built upon the apostles' doctrine. That's flat out. What did the apostles teach about Jesus Christ? We hold their word to be true. Remember, John was an eyewitness of Christ. He was there above all the other apostles. He was there in Jesus' life from the time of his baptism because he was a disciple of John the Baptist, I believe, was he? I can't remember. I'm just throwing that out there. So test what I'm saying. Everybody let me know afterwards. But then he was there until the end. Remember all the other disciples are scattered and he was there with Mary at the cross and Jesus looks down and says, you know, hold your mother. And he gives the, you know, the responsibility of taking care of his mom to, to John, the one who stayed there till the end. John says, Man, we're from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. Remember, John was, he was one of the original apostles. Like I said, he, he saw Jesus. He heard Jesus. He touched Jesus. He saw him baptized. He saw the dove descend. He heard the voice of the Father. John was on the Mount of Transfiguration and he heard the voice of the Father. John saw the miracles. He saw the healings, the power over demons. John watched Jesus raise the dead. John heard the teachings. He saw Jesus suffer and die. He was at the cross with Jesus' mother. And John saw Jesus risen and alive. And John watched him ascend into heaven. Eyewitness account. He was there. John simply saying, we are from God. These others are not. If you listen to John and the others who hold the truth, you can be sure that you have the spirit of truth. Verse 7, beloved. That is, again, he says, that is divinely loved ones. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. I'm going to pause here because he gets back into the love deal. 
which is good. But another evidence is not only, not only the knowledge, not only the correct doctrine, but actually the application of the doctrine in our lives. The proof of the Spirit is love, right? Love. I love how John calls them beloved in verse 7, divinely loved. You know, and many of these, you know the different words in, in, in Greek, you know, there's Aries, which is a physical love, and that's a conditional love. And then there's a brotherly love, which is phileo, which is, which is also a conditional love, believe it or not, as Peter demonstrated when he said, you know, I love you. Jesus said, well, do you unconditionally love me? It's like, you know, I love you like a brother. Not really. I don't love you that much. Well, then feed my sheep, you know. And so, but, but the love here is God's love. It's a sacrificial love for what is best for someone else. And he, what he does is he says, listen, the proof of the Spirit is not only that you've received the Lord, you believe the right things about Jesus, but it actually, proof is that it impacted and changed your life. Because God, he's going to go in to say, God is love. And if, he, if God's really in you, if he's really changed you, then love's going to come out. Love's going to be manifested in your life. And he doesn't talk about it as if it's all going to happen at once. He talks about it as it's, you're going to be perfected. Love is perfected. It's sanctified. It's completed within you as you abide in the Lord. And so that's another proof that you're a Christian. It's also another proof of who's a true and a false teacher. And so we'll pick up next time in verse 7. So <laughs> I didn't get very whole chapter. I had it. Oh, well. Lord, I want to thank you for your word this morning. There's just an absolute assault on your son. And Lord, but by the grace of God, go, go, go us, Lord, go I. And we're, we're all sheep. We're all have been pulled astray. And, and, but by your grace and your good work in our hearts and our lives, by your mercy on us, Lord, we would just be off the rails. You've come to us and you've shined the light of your son. You've revealed that he came from God in the flesh. He died on the cross for sinners. That all who believe would not perish, would have everlasting life, would be changed eternally. We'd be given the spirit of God and eternal life. And we'd be brought into this glorious eternal relationship with you, Father, that you've had with the son since before the creation of the world. Lord, there's an assault on that. And so, Lord, may we be a people of, of truth and a people of love. Work that into us more and more, God. Forgive us where we failed. And we just, we ask that there would be evidence of your Holy Spirit within our lives more and more and more as we keep in step with him. That there would be a greater love, a greater humility, and that the fruit of the Spirit would abound in us, the love and the joy the peace and the patience in the midst of this tumultuous world, that we wouldn't be lovers of self and boastful and proud and arrogant and all the things that typify men in the last days. But we'd be patiently waiting and enduring and focusing on you. We would have our lamps lit. We'd be ready. 
And so by your spirit, continue to do that work in our hearts. Protect us from falsehood, Lord. and Encourage us in the truth and strengthen us this week. Lord, help us to take everything we're facing in this society right now and hear what you have to say about it. And lean into you. And we just long for you to come. So Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords of this church and of our hearts. Amen.